Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, and read from verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. Paul says, "How, How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come again to your words, we pray that our meditations and my words would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're returning to our sermon series in Romans. And uh, you may remember that if you've been following us, that, that Paul had reached the heights of his, ex, ex, his exposition at uh, chapter 8, and uh, uh, where he laid out all the benefits of uh, salvation in Christ. And it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter, Romans chapter 8. Um, all those benefits, of course, are come to us by grace, and they're received by faith uh, through the help of the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, that, all of that assures us that we are, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous chapter. And you think, well, how better, what better way to finish a letter, <laughs> perhaps, uh, than finish there? And yet, when we come to chapter 9, and we notice this, noted this, a different note comes into Paul's uh, writing. A note of sorrow, even of anguish. Uh, and why is he anguish, full of anguish? Well, he's thinking about his cousins, his uh, fellow Jews, his kinsmen. Um, and the issue is that, of course, they have, uh, they have not believed. So verse, chapter 9, verse 2, um, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Um, they've received so many privileges. Um, which he goes on to list in the success, succeeding verses. Um, so many privileges in their history, and it's all recorded for them in the scriptures, the covenant promises, the law, and everything. Uh, it's all there. 
And yet, the people of Israel just have rejected, on the whole, uh, have rejected uh, the gospel. They just seem impervious to the gospel. And that, who, who doesn't understand that that's a burden that Paul bears? Uh, you may feel that in your own family. When you think about members of your family who don't believe, you feel the burden of it. You feel a sense of sorrow and anguish that they have not come into the blessings of the gospel and the assurances that he spoke of in chapter chapter 8. So it's not surprising that he expresses that sense of anguish. As we come to the end of chapter 10 here, Paul takes up that question uh, again. And some might be tempted to think, well, as you think about the Jews, maybe it's simply that they've not properly heard the gospel. Uh, So, uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 18, uh, he asks this question. But I ask, have they not heard? It's a good question. Have they heard? Have they not heard it? And then further on in verse uh, verse 19, uh, but I ask, did Israel not understand it? Maybe they heard it, but they didn't understand it. So maybe there's all sorts of reasons why they didn't believe it. And... So what Paul is going to argue is that, no, that's not the reason. The reason is not that they haven't heard it and they haven't understood it. Actually, they've had everything they need to to hear and to understand, but they've simply disobeyed it. Last week we... uh, Not last week. (laughs) I was on holiday last week. Um, Last time... We, uh, we focused on verse 14. Um, and Paul asked that question. How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And uh, we looked at that last time. Uh, quite ambitious always to look at one verse. Um, but it's, it's quite an important verse it, because it's, it's a vital verse. Because it, it helps us to understand how it is that salvation comes to someone. And so you can take it out and you can, you can kind of examine it as we did last time. And it lays out for us the, the necessary chain of events that needs to happen for somebody to be saved. So verse 14 shows us that for a person to be saved, they've got to call out to God. But to be able to call upon God, they need, first of all, to be able to believe in Jesus. So you can't just say a form of words, you know, just call call out to God in a form of words, and God automatically answers that. Or or even worse, you know, say a sinner's prayer and I got my ticket to heaven. Um, You've got to believe. So believing as you call out is vital. You can't just say a a form of words. But in order to believe in Jesus, a person needs to hear about Jesus. And actually, there's there's at least that. You have to hear about Jesus. But I don't know if you noticed, there's a footnote. Those of you who have got an English Standard Version, you'll see there's a footnote, number one. Uh, him 
whom they have never heard. Not of whom they have never heard. Now, that's quite a, a significant difference. It, the, the scholars tell us that a more, the most likely translation is the, what's in the footnote, actually. So let me just read that verse to you. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Which is just slightly different from how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? What's the difference? Well, I can tell you about Jesus, and you can hear me speaking about Jesus, and you can hear about Jesus through me. But what Paul seems to be suggesting here is that when somebody comes and preaches the gospel, Jesus himself makes an appeal through the preacher. So you hear Jesus in the preaching of the word. It's a glorious thing about preaching. It's not just about a guy who's got some, some ability to preach. But it's a way that God seems to use a useless sinner to communicate the truth. And it comes across as the word from Jesus. And so what you find is you know, people who are convicted by the Holy Spirit as they hear the word of God, they're not really listening to the preacher any longer. They're listening to Jesus speaking to them. That's the way the, the gospel works. It's how, how Jesus uh, ministers to us. God, Jesus, you see, speaks through faithful preaching of the word. So we looked at uh, verse 14 uh, a few weeks ago. And there seems to be an, an important implication that follows from that. And we didn't really go into all that, but we'll do it now. Paul is laying out, you see, a pattern of how somebody gets saved. They hear the gospel, they believe it, and believe in the Jesus of the gospel, and they call out to God for salvation. It's so simple. Hear it preached, believe in it with all your heart, call out to God for salvation. It's such a simple thing. And that pattern, it seems, is, is rock solid. Someone can't call out to God without believing. And they can't believe without hearing. The links are unbreakable in the chain. And you can't get to, to the point of calling out to God in any other way than, first, than believing it after you've heard it preached. Well, that's quite a strong statement, isn't it? The question might come to our minds, what about people who seem to have an experience alone? Um, you know, I've heard of some people over the years talking about uh, having had a religious experience walking in the countryside. You, know, you walk through the countryside and suddenly it hits you. God made all this. And they think they're saved because they have had an experience in the countryside. Or I once heard somebody say that they bumped into someone else that they didn't know who then and that second person said something to the first person about their life. And it, was, it seemed to be totally random, but they said something about their life. And uh, it was 
surprisingly accurate, and the first person burst into tears and had some sort of strange experience. And a third person came and said to me, so-and-so has been saved in the street through an experience. They had an amazing experience of God in the street. And maybe you've heard stories of uh, people, and it mostly comes from the Middle East, of uh, people having dreams. And they seem to, and they claim to become Christians because they've seen Jesus in a dream. What they think is Jesus in a dream. Now, all of those examples, no one seems to have heard the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the problem. How, how can you believe in the Jesus of the gospel if you've not heard the gospel? How can you believe in Jesus Christ properly if you just have an experience in the countryside? How can you believe in Jesus properly if you just have an emotional experience with a stranger who never says anything about Jesus? How can you believe in Jesus if all you see is an image in a dream? You don't really know the gospel. This is what Paul is getting at here. So what are we to make of those kinds of claims of salvation? How do we interpret when somebody comes to us and claims that they've been saved through some experience like that? Well, first of all, we need to believe in verse 14, that this is the pattern that God has set. Somebody preaches, the person believes in Jesus, and they call out to God. It's strictly not possible for, those, for someone to be saved in those experiences alone. It's not to say that those experiences aren't real and that they have happened to that person. But what we need to, the way we need to process this, I think, is that we need to believe that God in his providence brings certain experiences into our lives that may cause some crisis and change of heart and a desire to seek the truth. But they most likely, in fact almost certainly, precursors to a genuine finding of Jesus Christ. And our job is to, re, is, to, is to direct people, to shepherd people to Jesus so that they can find out from him, find out about him and from him. Therefore, when somebody comes to you and says, you know, I, I meet, I've met God while walking in the, in the countryside, we shouldn't immediately proclaim that person's a Christian and saved. We don't know. How do you know? Rather, we reserve judgment. We don't jump to that conclusion. Instead, we start shepherding people, leading people to Jesus. We start telling them the gospel. We pray that God will open their hearts to believe and that they will be then moved to call out to that God who has given them Jesus Christ, that they've come to see and believe in. Oh, friends, how we need to be wise in shepherding people to Jesus, to take care, to pray, and to point them to Jesus. 
not just running around saying so and so has been saved. As we move on from verse 14, we come on to 15. We'll go a bit faster on the other ones, by the way. But um, we, we note this. In order for somebody to, uh, to preach, they have to be sent. And we can look at this in two ways, I think. Uh, the first way is that this applies to every Christian. You know, how, do, how do I say that? In other words, we are, we are all, are we, are we all to be preachers, men and women? Are we all to be preachers of the gospel, proclaimers of the gospel? And I think in one sense the answer is yes. If you look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, let's see what Peter says about the church, about the body of the church. And he has this wonderful verse in verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, you, plural, or if I was in Glasgow, I'd be saying use. <laughs> but use <laughs> are a chosen race. You all are a chosen race, y'all. Um, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that y'all <laughs> may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you all out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of you. Every single last one of you. So there's a, and this is true generally of the church, that the, the church is this royal priesthood that has this preaching, proclaiming function to the rest of the world. And every individual has a part to play in that. And so, in one sense, every person is sent into the world. And so you can't escape, when you read that verse, you can't escape the implication that together this wonderful body of Jesus Christ, the people of God, brought into relationship to to him through Jesus Christ, uh, all of us as individuals have a responsibility to speak to the world around us, to proclaim to the world around us. And it's not just for the professionals, people like me, or the elders, or you know, certain individuals. God has put the church into the world to be salt and light, to bring the gospel to a world full of needy people. Those people that you work with, or the neighbors that you rub shoulders with, they're all so needy, aren't they? And I can't reach them all. I'm the professional in this room, but I can't, read them. I can't reach them all. I was always amazed when Susan was full-time teaching that she had the opportunity week by week to, to speak to children in her, in her classrooms and in assemblies about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it came naturally out of uh, the things that she was teaching. So much of English literature has is, is Christian imagery in it. Um, and she would, Susan would use it. <laughs> but she has that opportunity that I never have and you don't have. But that's true for all of us. We're, wherever we're sent, you have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people in a way that I don't. So, so you have a responsibility. Um, you can and you should seek opportunities to share the gospel 
because you're sent into the world. But there's another way that we can take this idea of being sent. And it is that God does indeed send preachers uh, by setting apart some people who are especially equipped to do the job of expounding the scriptures and explaining them. So ministers, evangelists, church planters, elders, all of these are set apart. And you'll find that in the New Testament, these men have their hands laid on them. For example, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Acts chapter 13, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, and the church then laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out to evangelize um, the various cities. And Timothy was the same. Timothy, gathered up by Paul in Acts chapter 16. And at some point where it's not recorded in Acts, but Paul mentions it in 2 Timothy, he had hands laid on him. um, And he was sent out. And he became a pastor at the church in Ephesus and an evangelist along with Paul. Another example of this in the Bible is the prophets of old. Prophets of the Old Testament. And they were anointed and sent in the name of God to be his, his mouthpiece. So the prophets would go into a hostile situation, speak the word of God to the world, bring God's words into the situation, challenge the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. Now all of this is important. Uh, particularly about the prophets, because where Paul is going with his argument here in Romans 10 is that he is, remember, he's still wrestling with this question of the Jews, his fellow kinsmen. And the Old Testament is, the, the Israelites in the Old Testament were not without witness to God and his good news. And so verse 15 Paul quotes a bit from Isaiah chapter 52. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's taken from Isaiah. 700 odd years ago, before, before Paul. And even Isaiah had a problem as he preached. Because he asks at the beginning of chapter uh, 53. He says, who has believed our message? Who has believed what has been heard from us? And so the principle that Paul's expounding in verses 14 and 15 has, has always been true. That this, this is the way of salvation. You call out upon God if, you've, if you believe in him. And you can only believe if you hear. And all the way through history, God has been giving men to go and preach the gospel and make it known. It's always been the way of salvation. Now the question might arise, what if somebody hadn't heard Isaiah? After all, Isaiah is only one man. Um, What about them? Um, After all, you've got to hear in order to believe. So what about those people who never heard Isaiah? Well, the thing is, Paul is saying here that you can't get off that easily. The answer to that question is is answered by Paul's quotation from Psalm 19. uh, Verse 4, if you look at verse 18, he quotes from Psalm 19. 
And he says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now it's interesting. Well, I guess I find it interesting. <laughs> I hope you do too. It's interesting. You look at, if you look at Psalm 19, and it's a bit we sang earlier, uh, who is doing this speaking and declaring? Well, it's creation. It's the heavens. It's the sky. The whole earth is declaring the glory of God. So this is not prophets, but the whole earth. So that's a bit confusing. Can you just go out into nature and uh, see God? And then you're without excuse. I think the point here is if you look at Psalm 19, Psalm 19 moves on from uh, the declaration of the universe about the glory of God, and so everybody can see it, to then to this uh, special revelation to the law of God. And he says the law of God is perfect, verse 7 of Psalm 19. The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of God comes and changes people. So the, the way that the psalmist writes is that he sees the revelation in nature and the revelation in the word or the law as complementary. And that there is enough in nature that speaks about God to drive somebody to the word of God and to seek out the word of God. And that's the very argument that Paul makes in in chapter 1 of Romans. He says, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's enough for people to get on the track And to find out about this God in general revelation is not saving yet, but it's enough to push you in the right direction, to seek him out. There's a couple of implications uh, from this notion then that God is the sender of preachers. You see, God, the person that has an experience in nature as they're walking about, uh, if if it's a genuine work of God, it will drive them to go to find a church where the word of God is preached. What are the implications then? Well, first of all, Christians need to see that, we, as Christians, we need to see our place in this mission. The mission is not just for other people. The mission is for us. It's not for the select few, it's for everyone. And if it, if it helps you, you need to think about your place of work uh, or where you live as a mission field where you can proclaim the truth of the gospel. God has placed you there. He's given you a responsibility. So go and do it. The second implication is we do need to have a high view of the, uh, of the need to send some people with special gifts to lead uh, to teach, to preach, to evangelize. So in this church, Presbyterian Church, like many other kinds of churches, we take a high view of minist- the ministry of the word. Not a high view of ministers, 
because we're just like everybody else. But we have a high view of the ministry of the word. In other words, we see the preaching of the word as vital to the life of the church and its health and its growth. That means that we care about proper, te- uh, proper training, that men called to this ministry know their stuff and how to articulate the truth and how to defend the truth. All of this is vital stuff. And in the presbytery, you know, with our group of ministers and elders, we keep our, ourselves accountable to one another for our doctrine and for our lives. All of this matters to the health of the church. So all of us need to have this high view of preaching, the preaching of the word, and value it. However, just one last thing to say. Let's just note uh, the sadness of disobedience to the gospel. Paul expresses a deep sadness to the disobedience. In verse 16 he says, they have not obeyed the gospel. It's a curious way to put it, isn't it? They have not obeyed the gospel. I think most people are comfortable with the idea that the gospel issues in an invitation to come. Come to Jesus. And it certainly does. There is an invitation to come to Jesus. But Paul uses this word, obey the gospel. People need to obey the call to come. Which means that it's a command. The gospel is actually a command. It's an invitation. It's dressed up as an invitation. But it's actually a command. God is giving a command to the world. Why not? It's God who speaks. God is not just a wee guy in the corner. uh, Pleading with people to to come and give a, a few dregs of your life to. Like some beggar. He's God. And he comes to the world and he says, come to me. And we must obey. That's what Paul says in Athens. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. He preached this. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, talking to pagans, Athenians. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising from the dead. A command because Jesus has risen from the dead. And so you Athenians who know nothing about the gospel except what I've just told you, says Paul, you're commanded to repent. This is the thrust. And when people are face to face with God and gospel preaching, wherever they find it, they will get that sense. Not simply that God is giving a mealy-mouthed invitation. Please, 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 please come. Please but they hear the mighty God of heaven saying, you come now. And they come. And they can't help it. Because it's God who speaks. 
well. Not everyone heeds the gospel. And Israel didn't heed the gospel. And this is a puzzle that people wrestle with. Why is it that Israel seemed so impervious to the gospel? But what Paul is saying here is it's not outside of the purpose and plan of God. It's actually foretold in the Old Testament. He quotes from, from Moses in verse 19. First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Uh, the Gentiles. With, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. All these foolish Gentiles. They're going to make you angry, Israel. Because they're going to come to faith. And then, and that's what confirmed in Isaiah, in verse 20. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. It's as though God has said, I'm going to go to these people. They're not asking for me. Um, I don't care. I don't need permission to come into their lives. I'm just going to go to them. I'm going to send preachers to them. And they're going to come. And they're going to hear the gospel. And they're going to come. What an amazing thing. And God seems to be using jealousy as a means of affecting the Israelites. Uh, It's a strange thing, isn't it? Now, you need to be careful here. Sometimes we confuse jealousy with envy. Sometimes we talk about jealousy. We really mean envy. Uh, And envy comes from sin and pride. That I want to be important and I envy something that somebody else has got. That's not what we mean by jealousy. Jealousy is actually a good thing. Jealousy, it can be misdirected of course, but in God, jealousy is a good thing. God is jealous for his name, is jealous for his glory. And that's all good. He should be. He's God. A husband can be jealous for the state of his marriage, or a wife for the state of her marriage. It's a good thing to be jealous of your mar- for your marriage. These are all good things. So it could be that here, God is turning to the Gentiles those who are not a nation, and extending his grace to the Gentiles in such a way that the Israelites will realize what it is they have lost. Even though they've got all the benefits of the past, they've got the the law and the prophets and the, the covenants and the promises and so on, but they have lost the way of salvation through the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And the jealousy that's evoked in them will cause them to turn again to God. You see, they'll get angry and then they'll want to do something about it. And that seems to be the way that God is heading in history. That it's good for the Gentiles to be ushered into the kingdom. It will serve at the same time at some point as a wake-up call for the Israelites, for the Jews. The wonderful thing in these, uh, as we close, the wonderful thing about these closing verses is to see how gracious God is to both Jew and Gentile. He can be found out by the, the Gentiles in verse 20. And of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient 
and contrary people. Isn't that our God? He holds out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Thank God he did that for each one of us. And may he continue to do so, and he will do so. And may many discover how his hands are held open to them, that they may come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the inscrutable nature of your wisdom. You know the beginning from the end, and you know how history is playing out. And therefore we should not be, though we are puzzled by it, we should not be discouraged by it. For you know who your people are, and with perfect skill you're bringing them to Jesus Christ. We pray for the power of the preaching of the word, that you'd make it life-transforming. We pray for our own witness that we as a church of Jesus Christ would have that sense that we are sent to wherever we go to proclaim the gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.